Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, DeKalb County Police Chief Mirtha Ramos reflects on her first full year in the role, and a year that includes dealing with a pandemic and calls for police reform. We did implement a new policy during this time because it's called duty to intervene, which is not something that was within our policy, which means that if you see an officer doing something wrong or inappropriate, that it is your responsibility to intervene. And now we can hold you responsible if you don't. That conversation coming up in just a moment. But first, this former Vice President Joe Biden is coming to Georgia tomorrow, his first trip back since the primary. Now, Biden will also travel to Warm Springs, Georgia in the afternoon. A historical connection here, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt visited Warm Springs on many occasions. Roosevelt, stricken with polo, reportedly found the Warm Spring water as a therapeutic source. Now, according to the Biden campaign, the Democratic presidential nominee will talk about bringing the country together during this time. Biden is then scheduled for a drive-in rally somewhere around here in Atlanta. And his wife, Jill Biden, visited Atlanta last week and is now in Savannah and Macon this afternoon. Senator Kamala Harris and Donald Trump Jr. are both campaigning in Georgia this past Friday, which lets you know that both parties are really concerned about Georgia. Senator Harris spoke outside on the Morehouse College campus in front of a small crowd of supporters, many who watched from their cars. You know, we need to vote to honor the ancestors, people like the late, great John Lewis. That's a reason to vote. Donald Trump Jr. told supporters winning the state was a priority. We need to win overwhelmingly, and we cannot do that without you, Georgia. So get out there, vote! And of course, all of this now is reflected in a new poll from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution released today, which indicates a very tight race between Trump and Biden. According to the AJC, the poll of likely voters shows Biden at 47 percent and Trump at 46 percent. The survey has a margin of error of about four percentage points. And Libertarian Joe Jorgensen came in at 3 percent in the poll and another 4 percent were actually undecided. In other news, Pope Francis named former Atlanta Archbishop Wilton Gregory as a cardinal-elect this past weekend. Archbishop Gregory will be the first black American to be appointed a cardinal. He will formally be named to the position alongside 12 others in late November at a ceremony at the Vatican. Gregory served as Atlanta's archbishop prior to his assignment in D.C., which occurred last year. In a statement, Cardinal-elect Gregory thanked Pope Francis for his appointment, which he says will allow him to work more closely with the Pope in, quote, caring for Christ's church. The other big global news, countries throughout Europe are enforcing new regulations and social distancing requirements as coronavirus cases spike across the continent. According to the World Health Organization, Europe reported more than 1.3 million new cases last week, 
the highest single week count so far during the pandemic. And today, Prime Minister Mikhail Martin announced Ireland will be the first European country to re-implement a full nationwide shutdown. Residents are required to stay within three miles of their homes except for work and other essential activities. That's just among some other restrictions. Over in Spain, where cases are also rising, residents must abide by a nationwide curfew between 11 p.m. and 6 a.m. Hmm. Meanwhile, the U.S. remains the country with the highest number of confirmed COVID-19 cases. The U.S. hit an all-time high in daily new cases this past Friday, exceeding 80,000. And Georgia is among the states experiencing an increase. Now, at the time of this broadcast, here we go. 350,923 COVID cases in total have been confirmed here in Georgia. Active coronavirus-related hospitalizations are also climbing. In total, 31,068 have been hospitalized, and of those, 5,825 were ICU admissions. And we know since March now, 7,809 deaths have been recorded. And now, as we so often do, we turn to WABE's health reporter to give us a little more context behind these numbers. Of course, Sam Whitehead is also the host of WABE's podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam, as always, thanks for taking the time. Hey, Rose. Thanks for having me. So, wow, we are seeing not just in the U.S., but over in Europe, we are seeing a spike in newly confirmed coronavirus cases. What does that say to you since you've been covering this from day one? You know, I don't think people like myself who have been watching this pretty closely are surprised by any of this. There's been word from public health experts for a long time now that as the colder months come and our lives that we had been living outside are pushed indoors, you know, we're likely to see infections rise. And as you said, we're seeing that not only here in Georgia and in many parts of the country, but also in countries in Europe who really had done a lot to drive the pandemic down there. So, you know, I don't think anyone is surprised, but it is concerning because we are only now in the beginning of the cold months. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's going to be a long winter ahead. So I think there's kind of broad agreement that we're, we're headed into a, a long winter. And as it relates to this nation, we're seeing and hearing that nearly every state is experiencing an increase in newly confirmed cases. Where does Georgia rank among all of this? You know, Georgia, we are seeing cases start to slowly rise. Uh, Active coronavirus-related hospitalizations are going up, too. But we actually are a little behind some of these other states that are seeing the pandemic really surge. You know, cases are really spiking in places like the Midwest, the Mountain West. These are places that didn't necessarily see big spikes in the summer like Georgia did. So in some of these places, they're really seeing the pandemic surge for the first time. I mean, I think it's important to understand that the pandemic is not a monolith, even within a state like Georgia. Different parts of that state are going to experience surges at different points in time. And so that's really what we're seeing on kind of a country scale here. Georgia is not seeing it as bad as other parts of the country, even though we are seeing indications that the pandemic is is picking up speed here in Georgia again. Well, Sam, is something else that we're going to experience in the CDC released a report last week indicating that COVID-19 was five times more deadly than the flu. We're entering flu season. What do you make of that report? Yeah, this was really fascinating. So CDC researchers looked at about 4,000 people with COVID-19 and about 5,000 people with the flu who were all getting care at uh, Veterans Administration hospitals. And not only did these researchers find that people with COVID-19 
spent nearly three times longer in the hospital. Um, they also died at five times the rate of those with the flu. Um, and these researchers also found that Black and Latinx people were more likely to suffer from complications from uh, coronavirus infection. So this is just more indication that, you know, we are not dealing with influenza. We're, we're dealing with something very different than influenza, when, you know, when we're dealing with COVID-19. And more indication of really who's hardest hit by the pandemic, uh, members of minority groups. And so, you know, as we're going into flu season, just this really stark reminder that COVID is not the flu in many ways. It, it is a lot scarier. And also the agency believes, and we've talked a little bit about this before, that the official counts of COVID-19 deaths are likely undercounts. Yeah, this was another report out from the CDC this last week that I just think is so fascinating. And, and what it really tells us is that the pandemic is killing a lot more people than our kind of official numbers are, are telling us. So what researchers did here is they counted the number of just total deaths that happened in the U.S. each week from kind of late January to early October. Mm -hmm. And then they compared those numbers with kind of the average number of deaths that happened in that same period of time over the last few years. And what they found were about 299,000 excess deaths this year. And researchers think that about two thirds of those, so about 200,000 can be attributable to COVID-19. They also found the largest percentage increase in these excess deaths were among young adults. So people aged 25 to 44 um, and among Latinx people. And so this looking at excess deaths public health experts largely agree is, is maybe a more accurate way to look at the true death toll of the pandemic. Um, because if, if you think about the kind of reported number of deaths, like the number of deaths we have here in Georgia, there are issues sometimes with how death certificates are filled out, mm -hmm. maybe diagnostic testing isn't as robust as it needs to be. And so looking at these excess deaths, experts think is maybe a more accurate way to get a sense of truly the impact of the pandemic. And Sam, the CDC also revised its definition as what counts as, quote, close contact with someone infected with the virus. What's happening here? Yeah. So for months, the agency kind of defined close contact as, you know, spending a 15 minutes as spending a continuous 15 minutes within six feet of someone who had tested positive. Right. So mm -hmm. 15 minutes of uninterrupted time. Now, last week, the CDC actually changed that to a total of 15 minutes or more over any period of time. So, you know, you and I could spending 15 minutes cumulatively with each other over a 24 hour, hour period, even if that was in short, you know, exposures, that now counts as close contact. And so um, the, the CDC actually came to this uh, change after looking at uh, a situation at a prison in Vermont, they found a correctional officer that had multiple brief exposures to other people. Um, and now the CDC says that that can be just as dangerous as spending a continuous 15 minutes with someone who's infected. Well, Sam, when you and I first started having these conversations, there was so much talk about when or if Georgia will hit this second wave. But now some folks are saying, well, we're in a third wave. Well, did we hit the second wave? And if that happened, <laughs> when did it happen? You know, I think I think the wave metaphor can only take you so far. Right? Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's yeah. And I, I think it's it's. I don't know if that's the most helpful way to think about it because the virus never really went away, right? Mm -hmm. Like we, we saw our, our initial kind of surge in cases in March and in, in the spring, and then we saw the big summer surge. It looks like things are picking up again right now, but again, it's a, a wave inevitably recedes, right? And I think that while things did slow down after our summer surge, it, it, they never quite 
return to levels that are normal, right? For me, when I'm thinking about what metaphor am I going to use to describe uh, the pandemic, <laughs> I just think it's important to think that we're, we're really playing a long game here, right? Even once a vaccine is, is approved, if that happens, it's going to take time before it's widely available. It's going to take time before people actually are interested in taking it on a large scale. And so, you know, Rose, I think we're going to have to be doing things like avoiding crowds, wearing masks for quite a long time. And so, you know, I, I don't know if, if a wave, thinking about it as a wave is helpful because, you know, waves come and go. Um, and I think this is something that's going to be with us for, for quite some time. In better news, somewhat, the FDA has now given the drug remdesivir the green light for use in COVID-19 patients. Before we get into that, let's be really clear that folks understand the difference between a vaccine and a treatment. Yeah, this is the first treatment for COVID-19 to receive FDA approval. So this is not to protect you from getting infected, which is what a vaccine ideally will do. This is a treatment for people who have course of disease severe enough to put them in the hospital. So this is a drug that previously had been approved by the FDA for use in emergency situations. Now it's been approved for use in patients 12 years of age or older who weigh at least 88 pounds. And again, who are sick enough to get hospitalized. The drug isn't a slam dunk. It is shown uh, to speed up recovery time for people with really advanced coronavirus infection with really advanced COVID-19. This according to a study from the National Institutes of Health. But in a big trial run by the World Health Organization, the drug remdesivir actually didn't prevent deaths in people with COVID-19. So mm. again, it's it's not a knockout drug, um, but it has shown to have limited effectiveness in people who are really sick. That is why the FDA has gone ahead and given it this approval. Well, Sam, we're days away from Halloween. Then, as you know, then it's Thanksgiving and then obviously the big season Christmas for so many folks. What are you hearing from health officials in terms of if not just the United States, but if we can get through this, because typically the holiday season means what everyone's gathering together. But that's got to probably change a little bit if we are to then get past whatever wave we're in right now. It really is a perfect storm, right? People coming from all over the country potentially to gather close with other people indoors, eating and drinking, which you can't really do with a mask on, lots of generations in the same space. So there's a lot of risk here. And what the CDC has said is that all gatherings have different levels of risk, right? Which I think people are more and more used to thinking about um, in the middle of a pandemic, right? So how long is the gathering? Is it inside or is it outside? Are people wearing masks? Are they staying six feet away from each other? Um, you know, I think you're right, Rose. It, holidays are gonna look different this year. I think if people are being smart about them, um, I certainly am having these conversations with my friends and family members about what can we do that allows us to come together in some small way that is still safe, right? Mm. For my family, I think the big, you know, 40 people crammed together in a tiny house to eat and drink together, that's not going to happen this year um, if we're being really honest with each other about what's safe. So for me, I'm thinking about not what can't I do, but what can I do? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not going to go to any big indoor gatherings, but something small with close contacts outside in the mild Georgia fall where people are spread out and there are masks, that's something I might be open to, right? So we have seen this coming. I remember Rose having conversations with my friends and family members in like March about how the holidays were going to look different this year. Mm. Um, and so I think it will be easier for people to not think about what they can't do this year, but rather what they can do that's safe, that still allows them to kind of see people that matter to them um, and, and celebrate and, you know, a different way this year, but but hopefully 
only this year. And by the time we get to next year, things will start to look a little different. And you got to wonder for those that love the experience of taking the little ones to see old St. Nick, that may not happen this year. Sam Whitehead is WABE's health reporter and host of the podcast, Did You Wash Your Hands? Sam, as always, thanks for taking time and thanks for your continued close coverage of this pandemic. Sure, Rose. Thanks for having me. And as mentioned, early voting ends this week. And to help Georgians find a polling location, Atlanta-based MailChimp has launched a new online tool to help. The website is votingonmymind.com. Now, Lane Shakespeare is the Senior Director of Corporate Citizenship for MailChimp. And when we spoke, he talked about why the marketing and email platform company decided to create the online resource. Also, a note of disclosure, MailChimp is an underwriter of WABE. Elaine, I got to tell you, I've never heard the title of Senior Director of Corporate Citizenship. Yeah, that Rose, that's because it's something I just made up one day. <laughs> but a lot of folks in my industry call it um, corporate responsibility. Mm. And I've never really felt comfortable uh, with that word. Uh, responsibility uh, feels a little defensive. Um, and I felt like citizenship feels more active. Um, you know, it's like going to the city council meeting and standing up for something you believe in. Uh, rather than uh, atoning for something that you uh, did that maybe uh, wasn't perceived as optimal. Well, I imagine then this is why the new online tool that you all have launched, Voting on My Mind, is so important. Let's get the backstory here. How did all this come about? Sure. Well, MailChimp is doing a lot of things uh, around Election Day. Uh, In addition to making Election Day a paid paid holiday for our employees, uh, we partnered with Vote.org to help inspire other businesses uh, to let make sure their uh, policies were flexible. Um, we in- asked our employees to consider serving as poll workers. Um, more than 56 employees applied to be poll workers this year. Um, and then we also wanted to encourage early voting as a way to help mitigate uh, long lines and keep employees and voters safe. Uh, and so votingonmymind.com is our solution to that. It's an online tool that lets you find your closest early voting location that's also open. You can do so in a matter of seconds, um, and so you don't have to sift through a lot of other information. You can just enter your uh, county of registration wherever you're at and get directions really easily to that closest early vo- early voting location. Is this just in Georgia for now? Yeah, this is just a Georgia tool. Um, we, you know, we wanted to serve our, our employees first, the majority of whom are in Georgia, uh, and then also our neighbors. We wanted to make sure our neighbors had a way to vote easily and quickly. Uh, and we wanted to share the same customer experience that that we're known for uh, with our marketing tools. Uh, and we wanted to share that in uh, the voting space as well. You know, a couple of years ago, I went to my early voting location for the first time, or what I thought was my early voting location. I went to the same polling place I've been going to for years. And I found out that in early voting, uh, the places are often different. Um, the hours are often different. And so I showed up at, to, a, to a locked door. Um, and if I can't figure this stuff out, we figured it was it was time for an easier tool uh, so folks could get to the polls really easily and without having a lot of friction in their way. Well, let's talk about the back end of this, because, as you know, being a ULRA tech company and uh, there have been some new locations that have been added since the primary. So were you all getting your information from to make sure it matches up with, let's say, the secretary of state's office or your the local county elections departments? Yeah, we work with a number of partners uh, to make sure our uh, our data is correct. You know, in addition, it's not an official tool by any stretch, but we do use official data from the counties and the Secretary of State's office. 
we really wanted to make sure that this was, uh, you know, not competing with anything that any other tool was doing, but we wanted to make it a proof of concept. Um, this customer experience can be easy uh, for folks to find the early voting location. And as uh, new ones pop up, we can be responsive and make sure that's added to the tool almost instantaneously. So let's take our listeners through this lane. So they'll go to votingonmymind.com. And then what? All you do is you enter your county that you're registered to vote in. Then you enter the address that you're at. So that can be your home. It can be your school, your work, or if you're out shopping. Um, And then you uh, just find your early, you press the button and it finds your closest open early voting location. Um, You can get directions right away from where you're at. The whole process takes about 15 seconds. Um, And if you're in County where we've seen really long lines in this first week of early voting, uh, we also direct you to Fulton County's uh, uh, wait time tracker uh, and then also let you know about the State Farm Arena experience uh, where you might save some time, even if you have to drive a little bit farther. Um, as those wait time trackers come online for other counties, we're adding those in as well. And this is only going to be available actually during the early voting period, correct, which ends October 30th. Yes, we're closing it down at 7 p.m. on October 30th. Uh, We want to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to early vote, but we also don't want to confuse anyone about the November 3rd Election Day. And you all just launched this a few days ago. Are you able to look at the data and see how many people are utilizing this? You know, Rose, we are a little bit, but we're not really tracking the data so much. We want to make sure we're respecting folks' privacy uh, and we're not in it for, uh, you know, it's not a competitive thing for us. We really want to show what's possible with customer experience. I've been really inspired by the experience at State Farm Arena, where uh, you know you get to go uh, vote on the on the same court where the Hawks play, and it's a breeze. It's easy. It's got a lot. It's got access, uh, both in terms of parking and transit. Uh, so in the real life, they they've really translated that same customer experience. We think we can do that online as well, and we think it can be easy uh, to do as well. So votingonmymind.com is you know, our response to how do we transfer that customer experience. Uh, to folks who are looking for information online. Now, Lane, what would have been really cool, and you all would have been just the saviors of the day if this tool could tell somebody how long the lines are. You couldn't find an algorithm for that? uh, Not yet, but (laughs) we're linking to that data as soon as the counties make it available. So, uh, you know, within an hour of uh, Cobb County, Gwinnett County, and Fulton County putting up their wait time trackers, it was also available on our tool. I wish the lines weren't so long and I wish we didn't have a need for it, Uh, but we're pitching in where we can. And we also don't want to get out over our skis. Uh, We (laughs) want to show people what's possible uh, with the online experience, but uh, I I don't want to get too far into uh, making products for vote for election. And finally, Lane, as we wrap up, what is your message to not only just your employees, but to other businesses that may be thinking about, well, maybe we should make a November 3rd, a paid company holiday. You know, I think that uh, November 3rd should be a holiday for everyone, frankly. Uh, but in the meantime, I think that that's the best thing to do is companies letting their employees know that this is a paid holiday for them. Uh, I'm so proud that MailChimp was able to set a great example here. And I'm so glad that our employees are able to take that day off and w- not worry about voting on Election Day if that's what they choose to do. Uh, and I hope it sets an example for other companies to follow suit. Um, I think it's a really uh, valuable way for employees, for companies to participate in the civic process in a nonpartisan way uh, and something that supports everyone uh, that they're, who's working for them and helps them grow pride in their company. 
The website is votingonmymind.com, and it's from MailChimp. I've been speaking with Lane Shakespeare. He's a senior director of corporate citizenship for MailChimp. Lane, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Rose. And a note of disclosure, MailChimp is an underwriter of WABE. This is Closer Look. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. What a difference a year makes. Around this time last year, DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman announced the hiring of a new chief of police. Martha Ramos officially began her new role with DeKalb last November 4th after serving about two decades with the Miami-Dade Police Department. Now, in our conversation, Chief Ramos back then talked about the need for officers and the community to better understand each other's role. Take a listen. When they see the badge, I don't think sometimes they look beyond it. And what you have really is a human being, a human being who chose to put the uniform on and to serve and protect. And I don't think we get past that. So when you have one bad apple, whether it's here, whether it's across the nation, it impacts the way people look at us. And unfortunately, it makes our job a little bit more difficult because sometimes you're treated in a way that you don't deserve just simply because you're wearing the badge. Well, and a lot has changed. A lot has happened within this last year, not only here in the Atlanta region, but throughout the nation. Joining me now to reflect on this first full year from DeKalb County, Chief Mirtha Ramos. Chief, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. What a year it's been so far, pretty much a pandemic, uh, a presidential election season, calls for racial justice as it relates to policing. Here's a question everyone's been getting from me. What do you make of this year so far? You know, it's an interesting year, especially coming into a new area, a new law enforcement agency. Um, It's been tough. It's a tough year for just humanity. It's a tough year for law enforcement and especially tough year for law enforcement. When you say it's a tough year for law enforcement, can you even think of another time in your career in law enforcement where there was so much happening at the intersection of policing? No, I cannot, because I think this may be the first time that I'm aware of that it has hit worldwide, not just us, not just, you know, the Northeast, the Southeast. It's the whole entire world that's feeling this right now. So when you talked about some of the priorities that you wanted to that were on the top of your list and you talked about, in a sense, almost the need to bring both sides together to better understand each other's role, the community and in the, the officers. Have you even had a chance to, to work through that and what that should look like? 
You know, it's been tough, but we have. I know one of the things that we've done is we had the virtual town hall, the moment we stop interacting closely with the public, where we kind of let them know what we've been doing and what we hope to do. Uh, not long ago, we had the candid conversation with our officers because I wanted people to hear firsthand how this is all impacting our officers. Uh, in addition to that, we continuously still have our Zoom meetings. Uh, we still are out there in the community. So while it's limited, I think we have continued moving forward and have made some progress. What was your takeaway from those candid conversations with the officers and the community? You know, I actually learned something about them as well, since I'm still learning my people. And it's that it reinforced the fact that we do have a lot of good officers whose history makes them the officers that they are today. So we have to realize that not only do officers bring their day-to-day -day baggage to jobs, they bring their experiences. And a lot of the experiences that the officers had were making them the good officers that they were today. What did you hear from the community? What concerns or issues did they have? You know, it's been very supportive. Uh, when we opened up the floor for Q&As, we really didn't have any. Uh, but the, we did get a lot of positive feedback. I got a lot of positive emails uh, because we want to make sure that we're accessible to the public. And so, like I said, even now we're going through an assessment process so that we can get accredited. And we've opened it up, public forums, and everything that we're receiving is positive. So I'm really appreciative of all the positive reinforcement that we're receiving from the community and the community members. Chief, when you first viewed, and I take it you have viewed the video, the cell phone footage video of George Floyd and the officers up in, in Minnesota, you viewed it, correct? I'm going to be honest and say that I viewed it. I have yet to view it to its conclusion. It's difficult to watch. Yeah. It is. It's difficult to watch from a human perspective, and it's difficult to watch from a law enforcement perspective. It's just difficult. I, I don't want to, I, I can't make it to the end, and I don't want to make it to the end. I, I see what I see. I don't need to see the whole thing to know how I feel about it. What did you make of what that spurred in terms of the protests and rallies and the calls for, again, policing reform, policing in communities of color, that led to defund the police. Let's start with the, the protest. What did you make of all that? You know, once again, it's just difficult being in law enforcement. You kind of have to stand on both sides. I mean, I'm human, I'm black, and I'm law enforcement. So it's a struggle. But what you don't struggle with is the right thing to do. And that's the one thing that we're emphasizing here in DeKalb County PD, just in DeKalb County as a whole, is we just want to do the right thing. And if we do something wrong, we want to fix it. And if we can improve on what we're working on, that's what we'll focus on. So I'm just taking it as a learning experience so that we can make our county better and our law enforcement community better. Now, these two incidents did not happen in DeKalb County, but obviously the Rayshard Brooks shooting death over here in Atlanta and also the two AUC students who were pulled out of their vehicles and those officers were, were I believe, that were fired or disciplined. So when all this is happening, are you thinking, do we need to do an internal assessment of our procedures, of our standard operating procedures? What was the conversation within the high ranks and that you had with the county leaders? You know, well, we have to do we have to take a look at it because I'm still learning the ins and outs of the policies. I just recently was assigned to uh, oversee the training academy. So I'm embedding myself in that to make sure that we are training our officers to the best of our ability. Uh, we did implement a new policy during this time. It's called duty to intervene, which is not something that was within our policy, which means that if you see an officer doing something wrong or inappropriate, that it is your responsibility to intervene. And now we can hold you responsible 
responsible if you don't. In addition to just implementing the new policy, we want to implement a training so that they know what it means. The average person may think, oh, well, everybody knows what that means. Mm -hmm. Well, we want to make sure we cannot assume it's too serious a matter to assume. So we are implementing a training where they'll receive four hour training so that they can learn about the implications and the reasons why it's important. We had heard reports, not just with the Atlanta Police Department, but with other police departments, that officer morale was low. Officers were thinking about leaving the metropolitan area and going out to other counties, other areas. In fact, there was a a county that was even advertising for city of Atlanta police officers to come join their force. First question, how would you assess the morale within DeKalb County? I'm going to say that right now, it's it's pretty good. You know, we've been blessed in the sense of that CEO Thurman uh, gave us that luxury of hazard pay prior to all the protests even happening due to COVID. So they were getting hazard pay for being out there when everybody else was sheltering in. Um, we've been having meetings with everyone and letting them know that we support you. I think right now, when I can't do anything about your salary, I can support you when you're doing the right thing. And I've emphasized with them from the very beginning, and I emphasize it to this moment today. If you're doing the right thing, I support you 100%. If there's something that is done wrong, we're going to give you your due process. We will investigate it swiftly. And if there's wrongdoing, we will take the appropriate action. I think most officers just want to be supported. Well, when you talk about doing what's wrong and what's right, well, let's talk about what when an officer is believed to have done something wrong. Should that investigation immediately be held from an external agency. And when you say an external agency, who are you referencing? Well, for example, if it's a death, if it results in a loss of life, should, for example, DeKalb County investigate that officer's actions or should that be the GBI or another external agency? Okay, so when we have an officer involved shooting, uh, the GBI does handle our shooting, even if it's an accident where uh, it appears that our officer could have done something that led to the accident. We do have GSP handle it. So while it's not in our policy, it is our common practice to allow outside agencies to come in so that we can kind of take a step back and deal with our internal administrative stuff and allow those agencies to deal with the investigative stuff. And we do that because we want to be transparent and we don't want to interfere. We want the outcome to be decided by someone besides the Cap County, not because we can't be fair, but because we want the community to know that we are stepping back and allowing an outside agency to investigate and determine the facts of the case. Well, and while that investigation or or probe is underway, would you rather have the authority to suspend or put an officer on administrative leave or through your lens, how should that occur? Well, and the way it is occurring uh, is that if there is anything that leads us to believe that the officer was involved in potentially any wrongdoing, we do restrict him of duty, which means we take his badge, his gun, his uniforms. During that time, he is not allowed to perform as a police officer. If there's any question about the ethics of this person, we don't want them out interacting with our community. So they are not allowed to do so until the investigation is complete. And sometimes the investigation may go months, Mm -hmm. uh, but if that's what it takes to make sure that we have the right officers out there interacting with our community, then that's what we do. Well, Chief, let's switch for a moment. What conversations do you hear from officers, you know, that you can share? You talked about morale was was good, but surely with all this that's been happening, they have concerns. I mean, what conversations have you had with them? 
You know, of course there are concerns and I'm not going to say every single officer is happy because you can't make everybody happy. And I will say that when pre-COVID happened, as it was beginning, people weren't too happy either because they weren't understanding. So what we made it a point is to talk. We need to talk to our folks. And I pushed a message down through the assistant chiefs to talk to their people. They need to know how we feel. They need to know what the plans are. And sometimes the message wasn't making it all the way down. So I actually met with all of the first line supervisors myself it took three days because we have plenty of them and just that for them to hear from me how I stood and what I was willing to do to support them. So I think once again, if people know that you support them and that you will do what you can, that's the most that you can do. And that's all that most officers want. So I think it took a little while, but we really needed to push the message down that we support them. But you of all people know that you being the chief, you will be held accountable for all the actions of the officers within your department. You know you've seen area chiefs who've stepped down or resigned or fired or what have you because of their actions. So how do you ensure that your officers are also understanding? You you said we're going to give you support, but also understand that you their accountability is also your accountability. So in a sense, it all comes back to you. Absolutely. And and I am aware of that and I stand behind their actions. In addition to that, I may stand by the good and the positive that they're doing, but if there's something negative that's occurring that is not reflective of the way we want the Cap County to be perceived, then we take swift action. Um, if we need to discipline you, we will. If we need to suspend you, we will. If we need to terminate you, we will and we have. The one thing that I'm big on is accountability. Accountability for myself and accountability for the officers. I'm expecting the supervisors to hold their people accountable. So if there's one thing, I don't want anybody to think it's all sweet and we just kind of let people do what they want. We hold people accountable and the culture is changing in the sense of you have our support 100%, but when you're wrong, you will have to be dealt with accordingly and we do. Does your department use no-knock warrants, Chief? We do. Um, I don't have my numbers right now, but I do know when I started my research for last year, in 2019, we had 456 search warrants. Out of those warrants, we only had two that were no-knock warrants. And what I would like the community to understand is that we don't decide if we approve a no-knock warrant. We go ahead and we put the requirements in the search warrant, and the judge has to agree that there is enough reason for it to be a no-knock warrant. And when at all possible, even if it's a no-knock warrant, we do knock and announce uh, to give them the opportunity to come out. Uh, no-knock warrants are based on the protection of life or the protection of evidence. The Cap County Police Department will continue to use them in the protection of life, but we will definitely consider not utilizing them as it relates to property or evidence. I don't want to risk anyone's life just because we don't want them to flush some drugs down the toilet. So while we can use them, our use is very minimal and will continue to be minimal. The voice you hear is DeKalb County Police Chief Mirtha Ramos, and we're talking about her first full year with DeKalb County. Many cities and regions reported a decrease in crime due to the pandemic. What can you tell us about DeKalb County? What are the numbers looking like for you all? You know, we're looking pretty good as far as our numbers. Our homicide numbers are 13% down than they were last year. Our Most of our numbers are down outside of aggravated assaults. Aggravated assaults or anytime you're out there with a dispute, threatening someone and you have the ability to commit harm. Uh, so those numbers have been the ones that we're struggling with this year. But besides that, all of our numbers are looking positive. What about uh, you all getting more and more calls regarding street racing? 
we are uh, getting a lot of street racing calls and we are addressing, we've made a lot of good arrests. Actually, we're having our first lunch and learn today virtually where we address everything that we've been doing as far as drag racing, what we can do and what we can't do. We wanna make sure that we keep the community informed. So we've been uh, fielding questions all week and we're gonna be incorporating it into our 15 minute presentation because we want the community to know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. You talked about it's been a difficult year, and even though those goals that you wanted to implement for the department, and look, it's only been a year, but are you able to determine when you want to start putting in some new programs, or, or is there anything that you've been able to do? Because, But I imagine with this pandemic, that's been difficult. You know, it's been difficult, but um, like I tell my folks, we can't use COVID as an excuse anymore. We have to find a way to work around it. So, you know, while we worked at creating some partnerships, Uh, that we're not able to build on at this time because not everyone is working. We have initiated our community policing unit, which I'm very happy about. It's only been a few weeks, but every precinct has a community policing unit. And what that entails is officers that are not responding to costs for service. What they're doing is they're interacting with the communities, apartment complexes, business owners. If there's a problem ever, we'll send them out there so that they can interact with people kind of find out what their concerns are, quality of life issues, what can you do, what do you need? And it's really been very positive. I'm getting a lot of positive feedback on that. But what's more important to me is not only is the community embracing it, the officers are loving it. The ones that are actually doing it say, this is what I signed up for. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to be able to go and do this because usually they're too busy. And so when you're going from one call to another call, it's difficult to take that moment to really dive in and find out what the problems are. But these officers, that's what they're doing. They're going out there and finding out what is it that we can really do to help you. So as you hear calls for defund the police and depending on whom you ask, you'll get a different definition on what that should look like. But in terms of defunding the police as it relates to perhaps diverting some funds to more community oriented or policing community oriented programs and resources. Are you in favor of that? Probably not in favor of the term defund the police, but are you in favor of some sort of hybrid for more resources that connect the community or or in in the police or resources for officers? You know, I think it's both. I'm not going to say that we don't need additional resources to deal with narcotics and mental health, but law enforcement really doesn't have the funding that most people feel that that we should have. Uh, We need better training. I think you can never have enough training. That costs money. Uh, We need to hire enough officers so that we have the time and the resources to actually really go out there and work with our communities. So defunding the police in whatever term that you use it, I think it's a negative. I think we just need to find a way to utilize our resources to the best of our abilities. I mean, I don't believe that Law enforcement is taking all of the money that is out here in this world that we can't find it from somewhere else to deal with mental health and deal with more children programs. Because if you take money away from the police to get to these programs, we still have the same problems and issues that we need to deal with. So if we're already struggling, how do we do with less? As it relates to those calls that might relate to a person under mental distress or a non-violent, non-deadly 
call. Is there a separate number that citizens can call, or would you rather have a separate number for citizens call that's not dealing with something life-threatening or serious crime or a serious allegation to someone in the community? You know, we, we have our non-emergency number uh, that most people don't use. And something we've created is Tip Thursday. And Tip Thursday is where Tip Thursday is on our social media and we put random information out. And just this Thursday, the last thing that we put out there is this is our emergency number. If you don't have an emergency but need services, you can call this number. So we are pushing out information and we want people to utilize those numbers, but we also don't want any misunderstanding. So if you don't know if it's an emergency, I would prefer you call 911 mm -hmm. than take a chance and call our non-emergency number and find a situation escalating that now you can't handle. I'm curious, Chief, have you looked at your retention numbers for your officers within this year? You know, I'm going to tell you that we're struggling, but we're not struggling any more than we were the year before last and the year before that. So it's a constant struggle where we're putting through academy classes, but we're losing personnel. Mm -hmm. uh, did we have a few extra because of the current climate? Yes, we did. But the numbers are not much more different than they were last year prior to all of this occurring. You know, Chief, you just mentioned a while ago in this conversation, and of course, it's, it's not a secret, you are a black woman. You are the, the chief of police for DeKalb County. And at that intersection, as it relates to c policing and communities of color and everything that's taken place this year, and, and incidents that have happened even before this year, through your eyes and as you reflect on all of this, because you see people like you who look like you, who, and the studies are out there and the reports indicate that there is a disparity in terms of arrests, incarcerations, and police-involved shootings and killings. What goes through your mind? But what do you do you wrestle with any of this internally? You know, I would lie if I say I didn't. Um, um, but it's tough. It's tough, especially being in my position, because not only am I a police officer, I'm the chief of police, which means the officers that work for me are black, white, Hispanic, and different nationalities. My community, we have the most diverse community here in Georgia as well. So do I dedicate my 23 years of service that I've had in law enforcement to start segregating within that? Or do I build on where humans, we need to work together, not be ignorant of the problem that we have here, but find ways to address them and work together. So while I struggle with them, I keep my internal feelings to myself and I try to compartmentalize that, but I bring that pain, I bring what I see to find ways to make us better, if that makes any sense. It's through your land, so that's all that matters. As we wrap up, what have been some of the lessons and self-reflecting lessons that you've learn so far? You know, I've learned that DeKalb County is very different, but what we're the same in is Now you sound like Michael Thurman. <laughs> well, DeKalb <laughs> County is different, and you know, he is someone that I look up to, so that's definitely not an insult. I admire the man and everything he's done for DeKalb County, but one of the things that I've learned is that while it is different here, the officers and the compassion that they bring is not different than what I'm accustomed to. The community is very embracing and they hold us to task and they put our feet in the fire when they need to, but they're very supportive as well. So if I'm gonna learn anything is to just bring myself, bring my heart, um, be fair. And I think that that will move us along in the direction that we need to keep moving in. Now, someone listening saying, Rose asked this question, what you mean the cab is different? Um. You know, it's, it's just different. Um, I did not have to deal with a lot of the black and white issues in Miami. Miami is a melting pot. And so race was not so much of an issue as I find that it is sometimes here. Um, and so 
Sometimes I need to be cognizant of that. Sometimes I look at things as what they are and maybe miss that picture of what's behind people feeling the way they feel. And that's what I mean by different. Mm -hmm. Believe me, I wouldn't change a thing. Uh, the one thing that the cab has that is better than any place I've been is the people. We have really good people here and I'll never believe that we don't. So we all need to come together when we when it matters. And I think we do that. And I think we do that well. Well, since you admire CEO Thurman so much, can you ask him for a little bit more money in your budget? <laughs> um, you know, I, I'm sure conversations will come up and, and I'm sure that him being the reasonable person that if he feels the need, he will make sure that we have what we need as he's done so. I'm not going to be naive not to believe that the hazard pay that he's given to our personnel has made a very big difference in morale and them knowing that they're appreciated by those above. So, yeah. I think he puts his mouth, he puts his money where his mouth is. I believe that. I think he shows it every day. You staying safe? How have you been through all of this? And your officers, have you had many that you know of? Or even not just officers, but administrative staff and support staff. Have you had many confirmed cases? Sadly, anyone die from the virus within your department? Well, we've been fortunate that we haven't had any deaths, and we've also been fortunate that our non-essential staff has been working from home. So in order to limit their exposure and our exposure, they work from home. So literally, if you have a badger at work and if you don't have a badger at home, um, we have had um, at least 10% of our people have been impacted in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Whether their family members have been exposed, therefore they've had the quarantine, or they've been exposed and they have tested positive. Uh, but fortunate for us, no one has had any uh, deaths in the family, and none of our officers have been impacted to the degree where it would bring great concern. What do you think the next year will hold for you? Or do you just you take know, it I day by day? No, you know what? I'm excited. I'm excited because everything that we've been doing, I'm starting to see uh, making a difference. You know, the community policing unit that we're currently working on, even though it's implemented, it's not as big as I want. So I'm working on that. I'm trying to bring a position of um, a civilian position that can handle uh, accidents and things of that nature. So our officers are not tied up on those type of incidents. So we have a lot of things that are in the works that I think will make the Cab County Police Department better. Um, no matter how good we are, we can always be better. So I'm excited. I think next year is going to be even better than this year. So I'm looking forward to it. DeKalb County Police Chief Mirtha Ramos, as always, thank you so much for taking the time, reflecting on uh, what's coming up on about a year. Thank you. Thank you. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. 
I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org election 2024.